Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and as February comes to a close, and with it, the annual call to attention, remembrance, and action that is Black History Month in North America, I decided to curate a Black Progress episode drawing on the research of Dr. T.J. Desh Obi in the historical ethnography of pre-colonial Africa and the African diaspora, and Dr. Beckin Kosi Moyo in African philanthropy, snapshots of pre- and post-colonial Senegal with Baro Johane, evolving systems and training leaders with Mustafa Njai and the lived experiences of Elizabeth Rollins Moskowitz as a creative, as a woman, as a Black American navigating career, marriage, and self-discovery in parallel with the civil rights movement in the United States. Each week here on the podcast, we're doing our part to share engaging stories and global perspectives that are manifesting a new world through business, education, art, health, and so much more. I hope this compilation of dynamic diasporans making local and global impact will inspire you, your presence, your progress, and your passion. When you hear the word martial art, you tend to have image right away of Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan or Shaolin monks, or it's always Asia, Asia, but Africans had their own martial art traditions. And as a historian, I can say that the African martial arts are actually even older than mm-hmm. the Asian martial arts. There's, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was this mystique that was developed around Asian martial arts, like these were these ancient traditions. But most of the martial arts that people are familiar with, Taekwondo and Karate, these are all 19th and 20th century inventions. These are not right. ancient arts at all. Right. But it has that mystique and people think about it that way. But really, the many of the African martial arts that I've studied and researched are actually much, much older. So, mm-hmm. What is the oldest of the African martial arts that you've come across? It's really impossible to say mm. because in the African case, it's going back so far. And the question is, how are you defining martial arts and okay. what's your evidence? The oldest documentation kind of material documentation we have of martial arts is the Egyptian tomb of Beni Hassan in Egypt. Mm. So in this tomb, there are these elaborate illustrations of various Egyptian martial arts, stick fighting, wrestling, this wide variety, showing different techniques and competitions. So that's our oldest documentary evidence of martial arts pretty much anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's hard when you start getting back that far to put dates on yeah, yeah. traditions. But of the, obviously wrestling, I mean, who knows? It's so universal and it's so ancient, but it's just when can you start documenting? But the mm-hmm. earliest would be that Egyptian tomb illustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The art that I probably spent the most time in during my graduate studies is a martial art called Ngolo. And I was able to trace that art emerged somewhere before the 12th century, somewhere between the 9th and the 12th century. So significantly older than the kind of judo, karate, taekwondo, and all these like, you know, by centuries older. Right. And that I'm able to date because of, uh, not from written records, but through historical linguistics. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a, historical linguistics is a really fascinating methodology that is kind of has really been 
really exploded by scholars of African history because for many, well, there's two, you know, for many places in Africa, we just don't have ancient historical writings. So how do we know about the history of Africans before we have written records? Now, first of all, one myth we have to like kind of eliminate is that Africans didn't have writing systems. So there were plenty of writing systems. So like in southeastern Nigeria and Cameroon, we have the Ancibidi script. We have the Vi script in West Central Africa. We have other ideographic writing systems. And archaeologists have kind of hypothesize a connection between these writing systems, Egyptian writing systems, with writings that has been found in the Sahara Desert. Mm. So there was a time called the, pardon the term, Holocene Climactic Optimum. So basically, if we go back from, say, 9000 BC to 2500 BC, we had this time when Africa became, the rainfall increased, the Lake Chad became this huge, we call it mega Chad, archaeologists refer to it as mega Chad. There were lakes and rivers in what is today the Sahara Desert. So all of that thing that we people think, oh, it's the desert, it's always been the desert. Well, no, actually, it used to be inhabited. And archaeologists have found pictographs on caves in this area and have hypothesized that there's very ancient writing system that kind of was the ancestor of a lot of these other uh, writing systems. But that's not my focus. Sorry. So I just wanted to dispel that myth. Africans mm-hmm. haven't had writing for millennia, let's just say that. Right. Okay. Right. Now, but for many areas, we don't have the type of writings or the historical old enough writings to talk about the history of Africa in various places. Mm-hmm. And so one of the techniques that's really been pioneered well and has really produced a lot of great fruit is called, his, we refer to it as historical linguistics. Some people refer to it as comparative linguistics. And so how this works is that linguists have come up with what's referred to as a Swadesh list. It's a list of words that are the least likely to change over time, the least likely that you would borrow someone else's word. So things like the word for nose or something, you're not going to usually borrow someone else's word for these type of terms. And so we collect these word samples from a number of related African languages and then Using this, we can kind of determine, basically, we create a statigraphy. So something like a family tree, right? Going back in time to see how related, how long ago did these different languages separate from each other. And then we can figure out in these different languages, we can look at individual words in any subject area that we want. And then we can look at these words and say, is this word in modern day Oshikwanyama, for example, Is this word inherited from a mother language? Is it borrowed from another uh, neighboring language? Or was it invention based on a previous term? And if it was inherited from a mother language, we can kind of put it up one level on the family tree to the mother language. So just like Latin gave birth to Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, right? These languages, when words come to these languages, they come to them in set patterns. And if the words are following these patterns, we know that that word came from this mother language. And so we can build a vocabulary of words in this proto-languages that are no longer spent, but the mother languages of the living languages in the area. And you can keep going back and back. And you can see how far you can push individual words back on that family tree. And that's 
boring and tedious and methodical. But once you have the system set up, then you can trace the words. This word came up in this time period. It spread from this language family to that language family. And words are artifacts, right? So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't have a word for something that doesn't exist. We can't have the word for iron if we don't have iron in our social context, right? Mm -hmm. So by tracing the history of words and dating the history of words, we can trace the history of ideas, practices, techniques, beliefs, etc. So using these techniques, we can go back in time, we can roughly put a rough chronology on when these words emerged, when they were invented from earlier things. Where they... So you can do a history of many different things just using words. So there are two pioneering scholars in this field. One was Jan Van Sina, and the other is Christopher Eret. And they have been able to really write dynamic and vibrant histories of Africa based only on or primarily on this language evidence and then kind of marrying this language evidence with archaeology in order to get more specific dating but we, it gives us general time periods, you know. Okay. So that's ultimately how we understand martial arts being this ancient practice yeah. that was across. And it's probably not just central to the Northern African, Egyptian, the Nile Basin, but probably it spread you oh, know, certainly. along the Nile like most civilization. Exactly. Well, I disagree with the concept that culture kind of came in through Egypt and then spread to the rest of Africa. That is a kind of a colonial legacy, uh, you know, legacy colonial mindset. So what we know now between both ethnographic research, linguistic research and archaeology was that Egypt was the recipient of ancient African traditions, not the mother of. Mm, mm -hmm, For example, mm -hmm. just just to give you an example, because I could go for hours on this stuff, but Mm -hmm. um, like iron work. okay? so scholars always assume that, oh, yeah, well, iron must have come from the Middle East and then spread through Egypt. We know that's not true now, even though it's not only scholars of African history know this stuff. But what happened is that we know that. African, number one, we know that Africans had different techniques of crafting a smelting iron. And we know archaeologically that we can find iron in Central Africa half a millennium before we have any evidence for it in Egypt. So we know it didn't come through Egypt. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. because the technique from ethnographic research, because the technique is significantly different, not only is African ironworking in the central part of Africa older than in Egypt. We also know that Africans were producing carbon steel much earlier than in the rest of the world. So by 1000 BC, Africans were smelting carbon steel because of a technique called preheated draft. So they heated the air before the air went into the furnace. This caused for much higher furnaces than in the Middle East or Europe. And the European patent for preheated drafts wasn't issued until 1823. So millennium before the Europeans came up with the patent for this, Africans were producing carbon steel. So mm-hmm. again, that, sorry, not to be... No, that's a great uh, example. Just, as a scholar of Africa, we have to constantly work at kind of undoing this colonial mindset that we all suffer with. 
Right. And establishing the narrative, which is what I enjoy about this work and about doing this program is that I get to speak with people who are at the foundation of changing the narrative about our global citizenship and what's going on around the world. I want to get a better understanding of why the where in terms of the place where you actually reside in Senegal. Well, I was born in Dakar, the capital. All my life, you know, time, I was shared between Dakar and New York, mm-hmm. New York City. Yeah. Even New York, I wouldn't say New York, but Harlem and Brooklyn. Sure. You know, those are the places that Dakar, Harlem, Brooklyn are the two places. Um, spend my life. So why? To me, it's just natural because uh, you know my family was there. Uh, I had brothers and sisters living there. So we were blessed, first of all, to have uh, generous parents who left us some, you know, some property located in that area in a neighborhood called the Plateau. Plateau was an exclusive French colonial neighborhood. Before independence, I mean, independence, quote unquote, because some people say we're still struggling to be really independent. Free, yes. They say during colonization, before the neighborhood, where you can almost say black people were not allowed. It was a, you know, kind of a, Apartheid going on there. Anytime you saw a black person there, it was like, you know, a cleaner or a cook or, you know. So with time, some Senegalese started, you know, to make it a point together to get their piece of plateau there, you know. They were educated civil servants or, you know, successful local people who consciously maybe out of a sense of pride or defiance, said, we're going to live in Plateau, no matter what. And thanks God, my father was one of those, you know. So he fought to get his loan and, and bought this thing. He was, a, you know, my father, he was, he was like a, what people call in America the founding fathers, like the first Africans that were raised in the 50s, like, like the post, um, yeah. or yeah, the Renaissance. Yes, mm-hmm. and they started to talk about independence yeah. of Africa, Pan-Africanism. So my father was a, he was a member of the first political party, local political party in this country that started to fight gain independence. So being a founding member of the first political party in this country, you know, that led this country to independence. And what party was that? BDS, Bloc Democratic Senegal. Democratic Bloc of Senegal. 1950. My father told me he sat at the elections as a representative of this party in 1951. Legislative elections, 1951. Senegal was not yet independent. You know, he, he became independent in 1960. So those, those, that, that decade or two decades before reaching independence. I mean, those are, I think, important historical times 
and I'm very proud that my father was, you know, part of this movement and uh, and played his role. What was your father's craft aside from being in the political movement? He was a civil servant, but uh, his his basic craft was uh, an accountant. Okay. He was an accountant, and then he worked in banks, and then got into politics. <laughs> And then became, you know, congressman and things oh, like that. Okay. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Interesting. So what was your father's name? Tell us. Uh, my father's name is Masamba Sasum Johane. But he is called Mas Johane. And there is a street. Name for it. Plateau, you know, where all street names are French people, if you, if you notice. Yes. You know, some, uh, somehow... Even our leaders, some of our leaders are not ready to change the names of those streets. You know, you see many names. You don't even know who these people are. You just know that they are French people, colonialists. And uh, somehow one street was baptized, like a French name was taken off to put my father's name. And that was very symbolic, you know. I think in that area, must be one of the first local Senegalese you know, who lived there yeah. and who took off a French yeah. name yeah. And, and, and the city, the city it. hall, renamed it after him. That's great. That's great. Nice. There was a time where a pandemic hit Dakar in the 40s, I guess. Pest. How you say pest in, in English? Pest. So the French decided that all Africans should be segregated out of plateau. Wow. It, this happened here. So that's why the history of a neighborhood like Medina, the Medina was like everybody out only. There was a real system of apartheid. Wow. <laughs> People when don't you, remember. The, when the, you said that, I was one of, I was like, apartheid? Like they really had it here, but I mean, it's everywhere. But it yeah, this is true. Like, you know, they would not call it that name, but the practice was yeah. the same, you know, segregation, yes. discrimination. Yeah. That happened here, you know, because even though Senegal as a French colony was a French colony, a way to divide us was to decide people who live in Dakar. Rufisk is uh, like 30 minutes from Dakar, beautiful old city, colonial city. St. Louis, St. Louis in the north, and Gore Island. If you were from those four cities, you had the right to be a French citizen. Otherwise, you're a French subject. Wow. There were two categories, yeah. subject and citizen, in the same country. Wow. And those things, you know, we still feel those consequences even now. You know, those division, hey, I'm from Dakar, you from, from there. <laughs> so, uh, the same way, the French created, I mean, the colonial powers created the Gambia, a French-speaking, uh, an English-speaking country inside the Senegalese French-speaking country. Right. Again, you know, divide and conquer. So, uh, Plateau, somehow my father managed, <laughs> you know, to get a piece of land in, to buy a house in Plateau just a year after independence. Like Senegal became independent in 1960, 1960, my father got this house in 1961. You say, wow, yeah. wow. I'm bringing my family, you know, and that was a time where, of course, 
uh, Senegalese are, were taking power, uh, were getting empowered, and more and more French people were living back to France. Mm -hmm. So, so I grew up in this neighborhood, very mixed. You know, I could, I'll meet French people, Lebanese people, also their staff, their employees, coming immigrants from Guinea, from Mali, from Cape Verde. I remember there was many people from Cape Verde back then in growing up in my neighborhood because Cape Verde was fighting for independence. It was occupied by the Portuguese. So there were many immigrants from Cape Verde, like exiles. So we grew, I grew up, I had the, I think to me, it was a blessing to be in such a diverse community, you know. Like neighboring African countries, I grew up, you know, playing soccer, or going to the beach with kids from Guinea, from Mali, from Mauritania, from Bissau, from Cape Verde. And the funny thing was like, we, we always try to, to speak the language of the other. Oh, that's nice, that's cool. So growing up, I, I started talking you know, speaking Portuguese. I learned Portuguese growing up because my friends from Cape Verde, Malinke, because my friend from, you know, Mali or Susu yeah. from Guinea. Yeah. Uh, each culture I got like, I could find my way or sure. tell them. <laughs> and we, I miss that now, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. You don't see it now. Like now, all the kids, they speak French mm -hmm. at home. And I, I think it's terrible. Yeah, they're missing their mother tongues. Missing their mother tongue because uh, like the elite people here, when they go home, they speak French to their kids because you know, that's, that's a shame, but it's a reality. We are approaching philanthropy from the perspective that the, the narrative that existed and potentially is still around, uh, like you say, it was uh, one which defined philanthropy firstly in monetary terms, but secondly, which uh, positioned Africa as a recipient in terms of uh, you know, uh, the philanthropic processes. And we want to change that because we know that philanthropy, even if we defined it in the current uh, formulation, which is love for humanity, is experienced differently by different communities in different contexts and different geographies. Mm -hmm. So we can't have a situation where African philanthropy is positioned way below and there's a hierarchy of philanthropies. And you know, top is American philanthropy followed by let's say European philanthropy and others. And then down there is African philanthropy. That's the narrative that has always been out there. We want to change that because that's not true. Philanthropy is, is universal and African philanthropy shares in that universality of philanthropies. Mm -hmm. It's just different, but it's not inferior or superior to other forms of philanthropy. So that's one area in which we want to change the narrative. And we can only do so if we do research on African philanthropy write it from the African perspectives and African frameworks, tell our own stories. We can also change the narrative by training our own uh, and developing our own experts in the field, 
Uh, and that's why we have a huge program on PhDs, masters, but also short courses as well. Because if we don't develop our own experts, we'll continue depending on others to define the story and write the story for us. Uh, but I think the third component is that, you know, the, there's always been practice of philanthropy at family level, in communities, nationally, continentally, and otherwise. So we want to, in, in a way, excavate, extract some of those stories from the past so that we can showcase how philanthropy uh, used to be expressed prior to colonization, during mm -hmm. colonialism, and post the colonial period. Mm -hmm. Because in each and, and every stage of uh, those processes, philanthropy was always present, but it was affected by those different processes, including today it's affected by globalization, uh, it's, it's affected by you know forms of migration and, and so forth and so on. So, but the fact of the matter is that philanthropy is still present. And so I think if you approach it from that perspective, then you will understand that when we then develop programs on philanthropy, we are looking at firstly changing the narrative. We also want to develop material that we can use for teaching. Mm -hmm. So we do lots of research. We do lots of case studies from an African perspective by African philanthropists of different forms, individual, community philanthropy, institutional philanthropy like your foundations, among others, your high net worth individuals, we're starting all of them because they are all different parts of, of, of what philanthropy looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, but what are, we, what are we teaching? We are teaching, obviously, from an, a critical, analytical point of view. Our pedagogy involves uh, not just, you know, you know, a lecturer standing there and teaching, but we also engage our students to also, you know, have experiential learning, uh, but also to, to 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 be involved in what happens in in day to day, you know, context. So uh, some of the modules that we are offering right across the board is uh, lead, leading uh, leading philanthropic institutions. Uh, one of the key areas that became very very necessary during this period of the pandemic is uh, concepts around liquid leadership. How do you lead? How do you lead during times of uncertainty, during times of uh, instability? And this crisis was so pertinent for us in terms of teaching about philanthropy, because philanthropy is always considered to be uh, risk-taking, it's considered to be flexible, it's considered to be agile, and, and all of those things. And that's exactly what is required during this moment in time. So how do you lead philanthropic institutions now but we also know that uh, you know philanthropy uh, entails resources uh, different forms of resources financial human political and otherwise how do you manage those resources so we have a module that focuses on management of resources right mm -hmm. from from their mobilization to management to reporting uh, and the nonprofit sector in africa as elsewhere depends a lot on philanthropy but mm -hmm. you know for that, for that relationship to remain mutual and sustainable, the nonprofit sector has to also exercise a lot of accountability uh, measures, some of which include you know, reporting, uh, good budget management, financial management, uh, and basically how do you utilize these resources effectively, uh, efficiently, and in a cost-effective manner. So we teach that. There's also issues around the the growth in uh, in wealth in Africa, you know, the growth of high net worth individuals, the middle class, and the expectation for them to give back to society 
so how do you advise wealth? So, so, so wealth advisory is one of the modules that we are focusing on. So we know this is a, this is a trend uh, everywhere, but we just don't want our philanthropists to just mimic what the West is doing. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we do it in, in an African context where their, 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 their advisory should really take them back to communities and the sensitivities at community level? Mm-hmm. How do you work with communities? We have, a, we have a module that focuses on working with communities. How do you work with communities? Normally, we parachute into communities with our solutions and then we take off again. But that's not how communities are structured. That's not how communities uh, work. Communities understand, you know, the glue, the social capital that binds and bridges uh, between them and their issues. So how do you come in as a philanthropy, uh, recognize the, the assets and the philanthropy that is already in place and, and complement that which is already there, as opposed to coming in and bringing in new solutions totally alien to, to communities? So that module on working with communities is very, very important because it is the foundation of development, basically. If you don't understand the values, the cultures, the sensitivities of communities, it doesn't matter how much money you bring in. It's not going to make any difference. Right. So we also have other modules around corporate social responsibility. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. you know, um, what, 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 what is the role of, uh, of business in society? That's really the, what the module is about. I mean, you know the history of corporate social responsibility, how it has evolved over time to probably the 2011 um, seminal article that was produced by the Harvard professors on on shared value. And so that's the kind of, you know, we have that module taking people from that evolution, but also, you know, uh, having debates around uh, issues of stakeholder engagement versus shareholder engagement and now to shared value. So we, we take people through through that and help corporates to actually, you know, make meaningful contribution back to society. We are located at a business school. And so, you know, we produce leaders. Mm -hmm. What kind of leaders are we producing? Uh, What kind of leaders are we sculpting for society? And philanthropy is is a paradigm for transformational ethical kind of leaders. And so we have a module on, on philanthropy and ethics. So, so there are several modules, but all of them, they are really uh, designed to firstly build the discipline, which hasn't been built in Africa, but elsewhere you, you already have a discipline. Mm-hmm. But secondly, to build a knowledge base for teaching purposes, but also for purposes of interpreting the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, you know, to continually have this connection between practice and theory. And so we are, we, we are really keen on making sure that what, we, what we, we, we teach, what we research informs practice. But at the same time, we want practice to actually inform what we are teaching and what we are theorizing. So that, that relationship between practice and theory uh, is something that we as the center want to try and uh, make it a reality. And so you will see that even you know, some of our lecturers are actually people who are practitioners. And so we bring them in to bring that practitioner perspective. Our case studies are designed to really, really be built on what's happening in, uh, in the workspace, in the foundation space, uh, in the NGO space. And that helps students to really get a sense of what's happening out there. We have a journal that we, we launched last year. It's a combination of research articles and what we call field notes. And field notes are just reflections by practitioners on what's happening out there. What is the name of the journal? 
It's the International Review on Philanthropy and Social Investment. Okay, good. We'll have that in the, the show notes. Yeah, it's actually open access. And so, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to have it as accessible uh, widely enough as possible mm-hmm. because it's an intervention from our side. Um, if you know, it's very difficult for African scholars to publish in, in international journals. Mm-hmm. Partly because of the writing styles, but there's also uh, the politics of publishing. Um, right. You know, those that are that are re- well resourced, especially in the north, they do have the resources to conduct research, go to field work, and 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 really be in a position to publish. Um, and you compare that with most African uh, researchers and academics; they really don't have resources at their disposal to even go to the field. Mm-hmm. And so. From our end, part of what we wanted to do with the journal is to create a platform for for the voices from the South. But we also didn't want to make it simply an African publication, which is why it's international. We want people to publish from anywhere in the world, even though we would prefer to have most of the articles coming from Africa. builder i mean um, i don't know whether you know but i i started my my life as a more like a carpenter Mm i mean i I, my background and my passion um, came from you know picking up woodwork at school at high school and being very passionate about it and uh, one thing that um, helped me in my life uh, that i had no no complex no inferiority complex over my passion which is which was carpentry working with my hands so those days at high school, I mean, I, I decided to take it up as a career. You know, I mean, I, I could have gone into university and um, taken up some white collar treatment, um, training, but, but that's what I just developed. So at a very early age, I picked up a job, you know, first to teach in the, in, in, in the Gambia, in the school that I was trained, you know, my, after my O levels. So I only had about three months break. I mean, after high school with my O levels, then in September, I was employed as a junior teacher in the same school. So mm-hmm. that's how my working career started to date. So oh, from, wow. teaching, from teaching for about a year, a year and a half, I then got employed by an international construction firm as an engineer's assistant. Okay. And that's just how I went and for about another 13 years or so, or 14 years before I started my business. So everything in construction, I just picked it up. Yeah, yeah. So do you think that young people today can follow that path anymore, any longer? Well, I, I think they should. It's difficult for them because society doesn't allow them to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine uh, parents, I mean, who allow your, 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 your kids, you know, after high school, um, he says, well, mommy or daddy, look, I'm, I'm not going to go into touch education, but I'm going to be a carpenter. You know, and actually, I, I fought hard to convince my parents that this is what I wanted to do. Mm, so even then? Even then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you see, the problem is that anybody who was skillful in these things and wanted to take it up as a craft or as a trade, I mean, you were seen to be somebody who had failed in your education. Right. I mean, those who did all these craft or skills were seen to be, you know, um, uh, not successful in, in their education. So mm-hmm. the choice you had was to go and pick up a trade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is why probably more in, in Anglophone Africa, you hardly find good tradesmen. 
in 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 French in French um, um, Africa is different in the in the in the francophone because they're quite proud of of their skills and that is why everywhere in West Africa you will find that the best of tradesmen are from the francophonie. It's very true. And so what do you think is that issue? Is it that it's the British education system? Like, what is the influence that that has created that rift and that and essentially a gap? Because we do have a very huge gap in skilled trades workers. Yeah, I think, I think it's the, the British educational system that we inherited, you mm-hmm. know, and we don't want to change. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, if you live it up to now, I am a very strong advocate that we need to change our curriculum. Yes, there's money in these skills. There's money in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, today, if you look at what good carpenters earn or good mechanics, you know, they earn good money. Yes. Mm-hmm. So and you're guaranteed of a skill. You don't have to pick up a job. You can work on your own, you know. Right. But it's just, it's just the society that's been looking down on these things. And it has to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That, that can be done at a policy level. I mean, we need to have very strong leadership. That will be will be bold enough to change our policies. I don't right. know about in other West African countries, but I have done some studies in Gambia, for example. Mm-hmm. In Gambia, I mean, probably about ten percent of those who go to school will end up being qualified to go to, into 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 university, or even right. less. So right. really, you have to ask yourself now: the ninety something percent, where are they? And they are more or less semi-educated. I mean, mm-hmm. being educated to the level of, let's say, high school these mm-hmm. days doesn't earn you any job. Mm-hmm. So really, my my own view is that we need to pick up these kids as a very young age, say around the age of 14 or so, and then get them to pick up a craft or a skill. Right. So right. anywhere they go, they can earn a living. Yes. But I mean, that is bold leadership. And, you know, I am an advocate that, look, these days we see in West Africa that quite a number of our young people die in the Mediterranean, you know, trying to go into Europe because they don't have hopes, you know, of of having a job. Mm -hmm. But if you train them to be skilled, even if they succeed in going across to Europe or anywhere, they'll pick up up good work Mm -hmm. or they can even be exported. We see this quite often. I mean, for example, in Qatar, when they were building all the stadiums for the World Cup that's going to come, I mean, they needed the imported skills. Yes. So, so imagine if we had, you know, tons of young Africans who are skillful. You could export them, and they will be earning hard currency. Right. So, right. across the continent, we really need to tra- train our young ones into into some craft or some skills. Yes. And I would even say to your point about the idea that only 10 percent are qualified to really be successful in you know, higher education or in a workforce, that it starts well before the vocational training stage, because what we have is semi-literate people because and this is my own you know, flag that I, that I wave all the time, because in the education systems that they're learning and they're learning in a foreign language. So if you are coming from speaking Wolof or Fran- or a Gan language, Chui, Ga, Fanti, Igbo, any of those, and you are going into the educational system, there are policies that have been enacted, but they're somewhat loosely implemented because there are not even teachers who can teach in the local language to a level of proficiency for reading and writing for those students. So I agree with you that bold leadership is necessary, but we know that the leadership is failing. So how then do we push the dial on exacting better outcomes from the leadership class? Well, I mean, it takes a lot of advocacy. 
um, especially mm. those who are at the um, in the employment end. Yes. Because without the supply of skills, we will fail. And that's what's yeah. been happening. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what people like us are doing now is, is training them. I mean, I, yeah. I have a training center. I have a foundation. So mm-hmm. in my foundation, one of the things I do is, is skills training. So mm-hmm. I look at the young people that I engage and, you know, pay them stipends and train them up, thinking mm-hmm. that, look, when they're qualified, I have a job to offer them, you know, so they're not idling. But I think it needs, needs more concerted efforts. You know, we need to really lobby our policymakers because this can't be done alone or in any small scale. Mm-hmm. We need to address it at, at, at a policy level, at a country level. I had the opportunity to think once my husband passed, where did I want to live? Did I want to join my daughter who lives in Atlanta? Did I want to restart my life in New York? Did I want to join Saltine in Nairobi? And I gave a lot of thought to it. And I think the quality of life here suits me. Mm -hmm. And so I relish being here. Sounds lovely. Sounds and was that your first time living in California? I lived earlier with my first husband when he was completing a film called The Learning Tree. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, when you get old, you say something that was 55 years ago. Well, for me, 55 years ago sometimes feels like last month. And I can only say that one day when you have the good fortune to be in your 80s, possibly what I have said will resonate. Wow. Okay. So before we talk about your first time living in California and your experience with your first husband, what would you describe as your craft? Over the years, you know, you've had many crafts, I'm sure. What would you describe as maybe your favorite craft or your longest enduring craft? What would you describe it as? Uh, probably, finally, not feeling intimidated by my artistic drive. Mm. Uh, having a father who was an illustrator for Esquire magazine and Playboy having a first husband who was a Renaissance man in photography, in music, in film, in writing. Some of my inner drive was squashed, but that was on me. And so it's probably the last 25 years that I've pushed myself at times to draw, to paint. The arts fuel me. They allow me to shut out everything that's going on and dive into my imagination and creating. Mm. So that's very interesting. You say that your father and your first husband, you somehow felt a little bit shadowed by their creative. Tell us a little bit more about how how that was growing up as a woman, because the world was so different back then. And it was 
particularly challenging for women. What was it like to, to know that you were creative? And I feel like you had expressed yourself in some ways that these, your father would have recognized and your first husband would have recognized. What was it like? Well, it was just an acceptance of more rates that were not particularly unusual during that time. My education ended at high school. My parents moved to Zurich, Switzerland. I had taken a course in Berlitz language school so I could speak German. Uh, The Swiss have a patois, Swiss German, and I went to a school that dealt in dress designing and illustration. And I I even question these days if it was a school. But of course, my parents felt I had to do something. Perhaps the real education came for me being at an age that mentally you're still growing to be in a foreign country, to navigate how how the country works, making friendships, feeling comfortable in my skin. Once at times a challenge, but one that gave me certain insights and ultimately gifts to move on with my life when I came back to America. Interesting. So what year was that that you returned? I was probably 22. And at that time, my parents had a very close friend with Ebony Magazine. And I had been modeling in Switzerland. So she chose me to model with the Ebony Fashion Fair. Okay. And that, that was fun because... I really had an opportunity to see many parts of America that I was totally unaware of. My father's hometown, St. Louis, Chicago, and ultimately ending up in L.A. where my parents had friends and I stayed for perhaps two additional weeks once the show had ended. Mm-hmm. So was that the beginnings of Ebony Fashion Fair? No, but it was the early Mm -hmm. stages of it. And the contracts of staying in private homes, staying in motels, staying in high-end hotels, traveling for about two and a half, three months uh, by a huge bus, I reflect on it and say that was quite an adventure. I can imagine. I can imagine. So in every, so tell us what the fashion fair was like then. So it was basically fashion shows that would come to town. Number one, the woman who had really started it was named Frida DeKnight. And she had a column in Ebony that was called Date with a Dish. And had to do with menus and cooking, but she also had a flair for fashion. And so she would go to various European designers and get their permission to um, show 
In other words, to some degree, the clothing wasn't exactly on loan, but some easy financial arrangement occurred. And so, yes, it was exciting to suddenly be in a Pierre Cardin outfit Mm -hmm. or a Givenchy outfit, if only for an evening. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so this was in the mid-60s, I think, right? Uh, Yes. Okay, okay. So when you mentioned the experience of driving across the country, you're obviously in a caravan with all Black people. And the U.S. at that time was a different world, but sometimes I think not so different than it is now. How did you all navigate? Were you able to move fairly freely? Did you have any major incidences as you traveled the country? Well, I think that Ebony had such power as a publication Mm. with Jet and I forget the other magazine they had. But in any event, our itinerary was safely coordinated Mm. that there were no racial incidences. Okay. And, And often the shows were at convention centers mm-hmm. or a college auditorium, but definitely within the Black locale. Okay, right, of course. I mean, eventually it mushroomed into a biracial mm-hmm. uh, fashion show, mm-hmm. and uh, but that wasn't the case then. So you spent the early to mid-60s modeling with the Ebony Fashion Fair. And so how did you meet your your first husband? That is happenstance to some degree. Mm -hmm. Gordon was older than I. And when I lived in Westchester County, I knew his children. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, we're talking about someone who was 25 years my senior. Wow. So you were, you were. I, 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 I with was his children. one of the chicks that said, this is an interesting opportunity. And often I explain, I don't try to explain the attraction. I merely say that to some degree, it was kind of like buying a car. 10 years or 60,000 miles. And we we had 10 years married. And then for the rest of the time, we stayed extraordinary close friends. Okay. And my last husband and Gordon became very close. And my daughter and I, daughter from Gordon, often talk about our experiences with Gordon. And yes, he was bigger than life. Thanks for joining us for this Black History Month throwback episode. As always, you can catch us with new episodes Tuesdays at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, leave us a review. It helps others find great content online. Until next time, bye for now.